Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now for our study in God's Word this morning, we're in that chapter in verses 6 through 9. Now, there's so much I want to say, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to, to break this uh, into two parts. So what I'll, we'll do is we'll cover our first part here, uh, the first couple of verses, and then we'll hit the next couple of verses. Uh, but to get things started, I, I wanted to set the table by starting in the Old Testament. So turn there for a moment, and let's start in, in Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, and if you're wondering where Nehemiah is, if you, if you open it to the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms. And if you go left just a little bit, well, you'll run into Nehemiah. Um, now, Nehemiah 8, the people have been captive in Babylon and now have returned to Israel to serve as the Lord's people. And what a glorious time I'm sure this would have been. I mean, probably the energy would have been running pretty high. A lot of that just because not only, I mean, it's not like they had these intricate plans, but, but boy, now, you know, everything that the Lord said has happened and they're coming back together to do the Lord's work and serve as the Lord's people. They faced a lot of suffering and Nehemiah encourages them this way. Verse 10, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, if you're going to make it in this new place, which is an old place, but if now you're going to make it in this place that you're called back to, the way to do it is in joy. You've got to fight for joy. And I like that. He's not saying, I want you to come back here and do this mission in, kind of, in sort of a stoic way. He says, come back, do this, and understand what is going to get you through the moments is knowing that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Live in that strength, knowing the joy of the Lord. Turn to Psalm 67 now. Psalm 67, that was this morning. We had that as a reading. And there was a reason why I wanted that to be read here this morning. In verse 3, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Boy, I mean, that sounds a whole lot like First Peter 1.3. We learned about last time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by saying that, he was saying, praise him. Get your worship going. Get it up. Verse 4, Psalm 67, verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That is an Old Testament way of calling the people to evangelism. What is Old Testament evangelism? Getting the nations to understand that their joy resides only in one place. The path of joy for them is only in one direction, and it is the true God who is the God over Israel. Let the nations be glad. Let them see that their source of joy is the Lord, the Lord God only. And not those idols that they've been serving. Make the nations have joy. How? Save them. Now, did you know that that was God's aim 
in saving you for joy? Listen, it's not a, a side deal. It's not one of those deals where you go, hey, try coming to know the Lord and maybe you'll find some joy somewhere. The idea of Christianity is joy. It is joy. Knowing that joy. Experiencing that joy. That is God's aim in saving you. That's the pathway to bringing Him glory. He doesn't want... God doesn't get glory from sulky, you know, stoic-faced, indifferent people that are now Christians, that are now going the right way, doing the right things legally. He wants people who are seeking Him alone for forgiveness and finding their only joy in Him. For joy. Now with that, turn to Luke 15 because I want to make a tie-in in the New Testament as well. Luke 15, you are very familiar, I'm sure, with Luke 15. Either you've read it or you've heard about it and now you need to get it before your eyes. Now no wonder Jesus illustrates this in three parables. I mean, he's, he's, what he's really doing is just giving the same Old Testament truth. You remember how this goes. You have three stories here, and these are uh, three stories about that all have some similar elements. You got a lost sheep, right? You have a lost coin, and then you have this lost son in the last one. And, and all three illustrate salvation lost and then being found. All three describe salvation as a repentance. That is turning from sin to be saved by what God has provided in Jesus Christ. Now, but there is one huge element that all three show us that is central to salvation. Follow along here. With the, with the sheep, verses 3 to 7, okay, you have a man who lost a sheep, and when he, find it, it's, when he finds it, it says he rejoices. Okay? Now, that makes sense, right? Imagine that. You're a farmer person, and what you're farming is sheep, right? And you uh, you want to make money off the sheep. The sheep is your livelihood. You lose one. You're going to go after it. You find it. You're going to be full of joy. And it says he tells his friends in verse 6 to rejoice. And then in verse 7, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven. Hey, what, are you, what, what are you using this illustration to teach us, Jesus? Look at it. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. And so the sinner rejoices too, right? Joy. It's all about joy. You have in verses 8 through 10, the lost coin, and you have the same joy. She rejoices. She calls her friends to rejoice. And then in verse 10, Jesus tells us the meaning of the story. Look at it. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Do you realize that? Do you realize that you could move the joy 
meter in heaven simply by repenting? It's amazing. All heaven having joy. And you have the angels that have joy here. And then in verses 11 through 32, same thing. And this time it's all about the Father's joy over the Son repenting and coming back. So you have joy in finding. You have joy in calling friends to have joy. You have angels having joy and all of heaven having joy. And the Father who clearly pictures God having joy. What's the point of salvation? Joy. To get joy out. We need to just... It's not... Listen, God doesn't save people to put their hands in their pocket and shuffle their feet and call it Christian living. I think it is clear... You have the sinner having joy over being forgiven. And the point is, God has designed salvation to capture joy. Now listen, not happiness, but joy. You understand there's a difference. Happiness is connected to circumstances that change all the time. And so if those circumstances are with you and for you, thumbs up. But if those circumstances feel like they're against you, thumbs down. That's happiness. That's not joy, though. Joy is that which is settled because of truth. That which is settled because of truth. You're okay with where you're at because you're in a true place. I've shared this with you, but I I love the the story of the guy whose house burned down and he didn't know about it. And somebody came to him and told him, running to him, your house burned down. And he said, the Lord's house burned down. The Lord's house. In other words, I... That doesn't change my joy. If my joy is the Lord, then He gives and He takes away. And so, that's where truth is. The Lord is where truth is. Now, the same kind of joy that we saw in Luke 15 is the joy that the triune God has for eternity. So good. God saves us for the joy of salvation to make that joy as full as we can. Now, right from the beginning, we are told that when Jesus was born, Luke 10, remember this, verse 10, I bring you good news of great what? Joy. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He says, I can't, I can't, I mean, I was going to tell you about him being the Savior, but I first have to tell you about the joy. Hey, joy, joy's here. What? The Savior's been born. And I'm sure the shepherds, after hearing that, yelled out a a nice little sweet, right? Kind of how it worked, worked with me growing up, sweet. 
All right, let's go back to First Peter. Salvation joy is Peter's message. Now, you, this is not hard to see, isn't it? I mean, verse 1, who are chosen. Verse 2, foreknowledge. Chosen for what? Salvation. Verse 3, who caused us to be born again. What's that? That's regeneration. That's what happens when a person finally gets saved. That's how salvation happened. Verse 3, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lives so we can live spiritually. And then you get to verse 5, and it's through faith for a salvation. Verse 9, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, as to this salvation. Peter, what, do you want to, what are you trying to say, man? So I want to talk about salvation. Even all the way down to verse 23, you have been born again, he says. All of chapter 1 is about salvation. Did you know that? That's what Peter wants to talk about. But notice the connection to joy. Look at verse 6. You greatly rejoice. Verse 8. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now what is Peter saying then? He wants us to understand salvation. Listen. But in a, in a context of joy. In other words, he wants us to understand you should never think of salvation outside of this context of joy. Salvation and joy go together. Salvation, joy, that is a theme running its course through the entire Bible. We've showed you some other places, but consider Psalm 51, David who sins big and he's confronted. And I love it. I mean, I love his response. He sins big. It's terrible. And if we're going to be confronted, how, how should a person receive that? He should repent big. He, when he's confronted, he repents. How do we know that he repents? What is, what is David's big concern? Listen to it. To it. Verse 8, he says, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. It is true, he's like he's saying, It is true, Lord. When Nathan came, my bones broke. In fact, Psalm 32, I lived for that entire year in a place of brokenness, but I did nothing about it. And it was wrong. And now I want that joy back again. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Notice the Spirit's connection to joy. Verse 12, he says... Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. David says, my salvation is the key to joy. And by the way, David is not saying, hey, save me again. What he is saying is, help me to be connected back to that joy which I first experienced when you first saved me. The joy that 
Salvation brings. I want joy. In fact, I want to experience salvation joy again. The kind that pushes out praise and songs from my heart. That's good stuff. The kind that really connects me to the real meaning of my salvation. Romans 5, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ into this grace in which we stand and we exult. That's another way of saying we express joy verbally, through song, through shouts, whatever. We express joy in hope of the glory of God. We have praise because we're saved. We have joy because we're saved. But watch this, verse 3. And not only this, Romans 5.3, but we also exult in our tribulations, in our, in our suffering. How? How do you say that? Salvation joy, see. First Thessalonians chapter one verse six, you received the gospel that came to you from us in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's how it came to you. And it comes no other way. First Thessalonians five sixteen, rejoice always. Philippians, really the entire letter, but remember this. Every chapter has this. Chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord, he says. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say rejoice. I love the fact that he says has to say again. It's as though he's saying, I just cannot underscore how important joy is. I think you think you know how important it is, but you don't. That's what he's saying. And I want you to learn it. And what we learn when we put some pieces together, especially from David's life, is this then. God saved us for joy, and when we sin as believers, we feel it at that level, don't we? And the joy is gone, and life as a Christian is really measured by that. And when I say life as a Christian, I mean experiencing life as it was meant to be lived. It's measured by that. This is the reason why we have to make a distinction between joy and happiness. There can be many moments in your life that you're probably not going to be happy. I mean, when for no good reason a boss comes to you and fires you, you shouldn't walk out there, out the door going, man, I'm so happy. Great news. Hey, honey, you'll never believe it. I'm fired. Aren't you happy? No, nobody would be happy about that. I guess it depends what job you had, right? <laughs> but the point is, is that a person can be at a place of serious disadvantage and yet have joy. As they're driving home saying, I have no clue how we're going to eat food now, but I have joy. 
Now, Peter connects us to that in verses 6 through 9. Let me put it another, another way. Salvation comes with built-in joy. And what we're talking about is capacity, growing that capacity, growing that experience, capturing it. The battle, whether it is sin or suffering, is to come back to that joy. Peter tells us joy is critical as a Christian if we're going to face the trouble of life in suffering or dealing with our own sin. So, how can we make our life experience great salvation joy? What brings a believer great joy? What causes joy for us in our Christian walk? That's what we're going to learn in our study uh, verses 6 through 9. So do me a favor, make sure you're in First Peter and let me read those verses of salvation joy to you and then let's study them and see where we, where we get to. The word of the Lord, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, as we get there, we have to remind ourselves of the context. This is a church full of believers that can see the persecution coming. It's down the road, but it's coming. Like a, like a giant cloud, you know, like a massive dust devil, like a massive tornado that you can spot coming. And you can see its pathway. They see it. This is a people facing suffering in many different ways at this time. And if you kind of do a run through of First Peter, you can see what this, the flavor of the suffering for them. For example, in chapter 2, verse 12, people are slandering them. In chapter 2, verse 13, the very next verse, they serve unreasonable governors. chapter 2, verse 20, they are being treated harshly. And in 2, 21 to 23, and, and in chapter 4, verse 14, people are reviling them. In 3, 14, they intimidate them. In 3, 9, they insult them and they act evil towards them. And he's trying to help them know how to suffer for what is doing right. How do you do that? Chapter 5, verse 10, he says, after you have suffered for a little while. I mean, the suffering isn't going away. I think we kind of live in a fantasy land at times. Oh, man, I'm really trying hard to get this suffering to go away. I'm not saying that you should go out and invite suffering. I always wonder why I work out, right? Why am I doing this here? I'm just suffering every day, like... 
Peter says, you have to know how to have joy when life looks like that, full of suffering. Can you just picture living in the face of life like that? You know, you look deep into your barrel of spirituality, and what do you bring up? What's there to bring up? I mean, Peter says, you need to bring out joy. And, and, and you know what Peter then says? I've got to show you how to do that. Your salvation was designed to do that very thing, to have joy in the face of trial and in the face of trouble. See? Now, why is that so hard to do? I think it's hard to do because most of us, um, most of us tie joy to some wrong things. We don't actually get how joy works with being a Christian. Some put joy together with emotion. In other words, when someone asks you if you have joy, you immediately think, well, uh, let's see, how do I feel? Do I feel happy? Well, I have joy then. No, don't feel happy. I have sad face today. Oh, okay, no joy. Am I upbeat? Am I positive? Am I optimistic? And if I can say yes to all of that, then yes, I have joy. Others put joy together with circumstances. That kind of thought says, well, how's it going with my surroundings? Do I have problems? Is everything flowing around me? I mean, is there trouble around me? And if yes, then if there's there's no trouble that's flowing, you know, in me and towards me and around me, then yes, I have joy. Still others associate joy like their Facebook. You know, do I have enough likes out there? If I've got that, then I've got the joy. Everything's good. It's a good day. It's a good week. You think that, uh, do people think that I'm doing a great job? Yes, I have joy. Listen, beloved, what you're going to learn from Peter is joy has nothing to do with any of those things. How you feel, your circumstances, your likes from friends or classmates or people you work with, whatever. Or your health. Okay. Well, then what does joy have to do with? Well, let's start with what we know so far. It has to do with God, doesn't it? Okay, let's start there. That's a good place to start. Joy has to do with God. Now, how does Peter reveal God, who God is so far in verses 1 through 5? Let's think about this here. We are chosen, it says, to obey Jesus Christ. And so, by obey, he means to have faith, to trust him, to a living hope. A faith and hope that produces, verse 8, love. And so joy comes from having faith, hope, and love. And those are the three things we see connected with the triune God. In order for God to get you to that place where you can experience joy, He had to do something to get you connected into the very joy that the triune God experience, experiences and has been experiencing for eternity. What? 
Send Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay for that joy. See, And he did that, didn't he? Verse 3, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he did do that. He paid for it. We know he paid for it because he still he lives. He died and now he lives. Now, if ever there was a person that I wanted to learn about joy from as a Christian, it would be Peter. Right? Think about Peter. Here is a guy who has some serious highs and serious lows. <laughs> this guy was, right, in fact, he was just millimeters away from both all the time. I mean, he was invited to see the glory of Jesus Christ, and then he publicly denied him. He was called the rock, and the next moment he was called Satan. I mean, near the end of the Gospels, after he denied Jesus, and Jesus rose from the grave, he found Peter, and he asked him three times, do you love me? I mean, why, why ask? Well, that, that's sort of a, a way to ask Peter, where's your level of joy? Where's your level of joy? Do you have it back yet? Are you back on the horse yet, Peter? That's where I need you, so we're going to deal with this issue. And you know, that's what the Lord does with you and me. That's what this study is, verses 6 through 9. Hey, we've got to get you all back on the horse. Let's go. And that's what this is. Here's how you get joy, guys. Peter has learned, and he's writing about it. How you get back to that place of joy as a believer. How you tap into the joy. Five points on what brings a believer great joy. First of all, a protected investment. The first thing that brings you joy is that you let your mind wrap around the fact that you have a protected investment. Verse 6. Now all that inheritance talk in verses 3 to 5, how do you know this investment is protected though? Start in verse 6. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice. Mark it. The key word is the word this. And I'll tell you this. I read commentary after commentary after commentary. I read a lot of them this last week. And every single one of them wanted to deal with what this word this referred to. What is the antecedent of the word this? And I'm going to give you two answers. One of them is a very cerebral answer. And the other one is just a more of a contextual answer. Okay? The cerebral cerebral answer, if you really want to know what is it connected to, it actually is connected, if you go back, it is connected to that phrase, in the last time. In the last time. In other words, that which will happen in the future. What's going to happen in the future? You're going to actually get an inheritance in the future. And so this is sort of an anticipatory joy. Lots of views about this, but I think the best view, so that's that's a thought there, and that deals with the grammar. But I think he stretches back even further than just the grammar. And I believe he is, and this is, by the way, the common view from commentators, but I believe he is referring to verses 3 through 5 as a whole. 
in this, in everything I just told you, you greatly rejoice. Where does my joy rest on? The whole inheritance. Notice not just joy, but greatly rejoice. Great joy. There is something that I can have absolutely great joy, the highest kind of joy in. What? Whatever the word this is connected to. Now this word for joy is never used for temporal joy like we use the word happy. Rogers and Rogers. I love that. Sounds like in a law firm or whatever. It's not. These are, they wrote uh, analytical uh, key to the uh, analytical key to the Greek New Testament. They said this. This verb appears to be used always with the connotation of a religious joy, a joy that springs from the contemplation of God or God's salvation. Right. So it's not. It doesn't have to do with circumstances or things around it. It has to do with thinking deeply about God or God's salvation. That, that is the salvation he, he has provided. Spiritual joy, salvation joy. Great joy comes from the things that verses 3 to 5 talked about, our inheritance, okay? Now, what do we learn about our inheritance? We learn that it is protected by the power of God, that it is kept by Him, that it is attached to a living hope that, is, it, that it is as alive as Jesus is alive, right? Now, is the resurrection true? Then our inheritance is that certain, okay? That's what he connects it to. Now, what does that mean? It means we can have joy. What is our spiritual investment? What's all our spiritual riches poured into? Our inheritance. How secure is that? Think, it, think about it with me. According to verses 3 to 5, God's very power is protecting it. Ask yourself, how powerful is God? That means that our inheritance can never perish, it can never decay, it can never get less or, or get robbed or change or be taken away. That's the in this we greatly rejoice that Peter's talking about. Joy because it's protected. I love it. He's saying, hey, the idea, the thought, the truth about the fact that this is protected should give you monumental joy. Now, um, we can make some serious connections to things we typically look to get joy from. Things that we typically look to get joy from. And we can go lots of different places. For example, usually from the three G's. For some, they seek glory from, from, from gold. Gold helps them get stuff and so materials. And so you, you find your security, you find your, your joy in the amount of security that you have. And whether that security comes in the form of a home or a car or clothing or some mutual fund or some future inheritance or something that you're, you're going to be able to get down the road. And so it, the, 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 the gold or the, 
helps them have better circumstances in life. For others, it's girls or guys that they find security in. Sex, relationships. It's still others, it's glory. You find your security in fame or joy from position or status or promotions or credit for something big or some type of performance that you, you did. You want that. You want to get credit for it. You want people to recognize that. Hey, I did, I did that. I, I sounded good. I looked good. I mean, didn't you notice? Don't you want to recognize me for this thing that I did, this achievement? Now listen, all of that stuff you can't protect. All of that stuff just, just fades away. It's fickle. It doesn't last. It is stuff that is connected to this earth. Matthew 6, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where it can't rust or be stolen. Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. Things on earth, beloved. That's our problem. Listen, the things on earth can't be protected. I don't care how much insurance you have. You say, well, I've got a great insurance policy. Well, that's not enough. It's not enough. It never is, is it? Sometimes you talk to people and say, well, I've really done the right thing. I've got this insurance deal and this should cover my family for a lifetime, for whatever it is that they need. And I'm just thinking to myself, you have no clue what their needs are going to be 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Nor do you even know what their desires will be. What if their wants are greater than what you think their needs are? Didn't really factor that in, huh? You have no way to factor that in. Those things can't be protected. They don't last. No wonder John said, 1 John 2, the world is passing away and also its lusts. Verse 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. What's the message? Get your eyes off of this world. It is, here's what it is. It's not a great investment. It's a sad investment, always. You say, so you're telling us not to have insurance? No, I'm not saying that. Do your best to take care of the people that you love and so forth. But understand something. It's always a poor investment. Always. It's a sad investment, I guess you could call it. But you know what's cause for joy? A protected investment that can't be touched, that will last forever. That is wealth beyond imagination. That is permanent, right? True spiritual riches that we have in Christ, right? Now, Jesus had to give his men a lesson on joy. I love that he did this. I love it, I love it. Just before he went to the cross. You know, he says, hey, this is important. You've got to get it. You've got to get this, guys. Because what's about to happen is going to seriously challenge your joy. Now, believe it or not, they, they actually had a, a good grasp on what their joy should be connected to. They just didn't understand what they had, and they didn't understand how to go about dealing with when it was, when, when it was perceived to be gone. They had to trust the Lord's word. So what are you talking about? We'll turn for a moment to John 16 so that you can see what I'm talking about. And we'll, we'll try to draw some things out of this. 
Here's the short version. And then I'll show you. He's Basically, the short version is this. Your joy is going to be turned into sorrow. And then you're going to wonder if that was a good investment. And then it will turn into joy, and you'll understand what you have in this inheritance. There you go. That's the lesson. And by the way, that's a picture for you and me about what our joy should be connected to. Look at verse 16. Jesus said, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Okay. What's, what do you mean by a little while, right? What do you mean by not see you and will see you? Are you going to go off the grid? Are you going to go to the other side of the country? Where are you, what's happening? Well, we understand now that they didn't understand. Even though he told them, already he's told them. Death and then resurrection. But they don't understand that. So verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Grief turned into joy, see? Jesus says, let me illustrate this. Verse 21, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Just so you know, ladies, this is not me saying this. This is Jesus, all right? You're not arguing with him, okay? He knows, Jesus says that's how it works in life, too. I mean, grief and anguish anguish that churns into joy. What's the time of grief that Jesus was talking about? The cross, the grave, right? Okay. What about the joy? The resurrection. Now listen. Did they have the promise? Absolutely. Jesus is telling them here, guys, it's going to happen. There will be joy. Did they have it yet, though? The joy part yet. Well, they did. He said, but it's going to go away and it's going to come back. The fullness of that joy, though, is tied into the resurrection. Not only the word of Jesus, which came with the promise, but once they got the verification that Jesus was alive their investment became alive too, right? The anguish would leave. This is why he gave them this illustration. The sorrow would go away, just like that mother with a baby, right? I mean, the mother never forgets the pain, but boy, the joy of the child replaces that, right? Sorrow turned into joy because Jesus jumped out of the grave and is alive. That's good stuff. Why did Jesus die? To secure their joy. That's why. And and yours, too. And when he rose, he made that joy a reality. Joy is based on the resurrection. Jesus is alive and so is our inheritance. The investment is good. It's protected. 
The resurrection meant Jesus is alive. That meant the inheritance is alive. And that started joy. The joy of a future inheritance. Meant to help these guys understand, hey guys, stop investing into the, into the world. Into this earth, there's a joy like no other that comes when you understand just how protected that investment is in heaven. Now listen, that's the joy of Romans 5.2 that we mentioned earlier. We exult in hope of the glory of God. 1 Peter 1.3, the living hope. Now, now, Ephesians 1, we touched on this last Lord's Day. How protected is this investment that we have in our inheritance Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance, he says. When? Verse 11, when God predestined us. What's that mean? It means we have to believe a message so that we can be saved. Just because you have that doesn't mean you're automatically saved, right? So verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, sealed. You remember we talked about that word sealed, it means arabone, and that is the word, it was also used as to be an engagement ring. And that engagement ring is God's promise to all Christians, promise of what? Verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, God gave the Holy Spirit to us, as an engagement ring, <coughs> are you ready for this? To protect the investment for the inheritance. You put that together with First Peter 1, 6. And what it says is the more we meditate on that, the greater our joy. I think some of us are missing joy because we're so wrapped up in this world. That's what a suffering believer does. He gets joy from remembering just how protected his inheritance is. All that work of forsaking this world for Christ is worth it. That's the point. Now what this means is that God through Peter here is giving us a different perspective on our troubles. He's not telling us to get away from them. He's not telling us that they are bad. He's telling us that inside those troubles is an opportunity to see joy. To have joy. Sometimes we're backwards about our troubles. We pray away from them, right? We run from them. We get depressed by them. Peter says, you need to get joy from remembering what he is protecting. Now, I can illustrate this. To get joy, that is, that joy has to do with your perspective. Let me say it a different way. Joy has to do with what it is that you're looking at. You're looking at the world, no joy. You're looking at what you have, in, in that investment, in your inheritance, joy. My parents used to live up in the eastern part of the state of Washington, and it was about a 750-mile drive, sort of straight up from where we're at. 
And many times we would drive it in one shot from Fallon. And you got to McDermott. You know, it's almost like it's, it's amazing. Like on this side of McDermott, everything is just kind of like, oh, there's stuff and, you know, things and you're really close to Winnemuck and all that. On the other side is almost like, I don't know, like the escape from New York. You know I mean? It's like it's just, there's, it's just nothing. It's, uh, it's uh, like, oh, man, this, this is prison out there. And I, if I go out there and I, I don't even know if I'll ever be found, right? It's where the, you go to get really, really lost. Three hours, for almost three hours, it was, you know, hilly nothingness, okay? Except for the rock house uh, place where you can get your coffee and go to the bathroom, all right? It's a pretty cool place. Outside of that, nothing. Now, how do you get kids when they're really young to get excited when all they see out their windows is the same boring stuff over and over and over and over again. You say you get that stuff, you get it Costco that makes them go to sleep. No, (laughs) don't do that. We invented games to play. You know, sort of the, we had uh, lots of I Spy games and strategic topics to talk about and songs to sing and so forth. Why did we do that? At that moment, when we crossed right there, we knew it's time to, you know, get this deal going because we got to get their perspective changing on the on the one hand you can look out the window and, oh boy right are we almost there yet or you can just change their perspective so that now that drive becomes something different it's all about your perspective beloved why because the joy is getting to grandma and grandpa's house There is joy and anticipation, but to get that joy now, you have to change your perspective. And that's what we're doing when we say, that's when he says, in this you greatly rejoice. Get your minds up where Christ is seated, protecting the investment. You ever had that prayer with him? Lord, how's the investment? How's the inheritance? It's good. I know it's good. just want to talk to you about it. just want to thank you for it. just want to praise you. Hey, I'm praying, Lord, by out of your grace and mercy, keep doing it. He said, well, you know he'll do it. Yeah, but I want to ask him to because I love him. Because it's just how I talk to him, right? That's the first one. Second one, how do you get joy? How do you increase the joy? Secondly, it comes from a proven faith. A proven faith. Back to 1 Peter 1, look at verse 6. Even though for now, a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, there's a big lesson here on trials. Very practical, what I'm about to give you. Now, on the one hand, you've got to keep your eyes up. And there is a heavenly perspective that is very tied into the future. But on the other, you have to understand the present on what's going on here, how the Lord is putting together life for your joy right now. I'm going to show you from this verse in the next one. Now what Peter says in this point is, joy comes now 
not around trials, not despite trials, but because of them. Wait, 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 wait. You said joy comes because of trials? That's right. And I'll show you. You say, yeah, you got to tell me because I need to make, you got to be sure of this. Verse 7, that the proof of your faith, there it is. Your trials prove your faith is true. That you're a real Christian. Where do they come from? They come from the one proving your faith is in God. These trials come from God himself, actually. Why? To get you to joy. Now, the way to see this is we go from anticipation in heaven in verse 6 to realization in earth. The now, at the end of verse 6 and 7. And what Peter does is he gives us framework on some principles. I'm going to call these principles for tough times, and I want to give them to you. Here we go. Look at them. They're all all here. They're real simple. Principles for tough times. You ready? First of all, they are temporary. Peter says, even though now, for a little while, they're temporary. For your joy, you have to remember that the trials are just a little while. That's what Peter was getting at in 2 Corinthians 4 when he said, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. They're just for now. It always feels like it will last a long time. But he says it's temporary. So that's the first one. Second thing, principle about tough, tough times. Tough times are temporary. Tough times are thoughtful. Tough times are thoughtful. Ooh, what do you mean by that? Well, just that they serve a purpose. Verse 6, he says, if necessary. You can even translate that word if to be since, since they are necessary. In other words, the reason you have tough, t- tough times is because they're necessary. Say it a different way. Because God has purpose for those tough times in your life. You say, well, what purpose could God ever have for taking me through tough times? Oh, many. One purpose might be to get you to be humble. Maybe you're not humble in in something. It might be to get you dependent. You're not praying to Him. It might be to get you to stop loving this world. It might be to get you to stop sinning. It might be to get you to become more like Christ who also suffered and learned obedience, right? Third, tough times are temporary. They're thoughtful. They're they're toilsome. They're full of pain. You say, well, I get that. Look at verse 6. You have been distressed. The word distressed here, it means to cause pain, to put to grief. The word expressed is not just suffering, but the mental effect of suffering. 
Tough times are toilsome. They, they bring pain. And sometimes, sometimes we get shocked by the pain. But you know what? Uh, tough times are supposed to be painful. Hebrews 12, discipline isn't always because you're doing something wrong. Did you know that? The discipline from the hand of the Lord. Sometimes that discipline is more like a John 15 pruning. A pruning. And the Lord prunes all those He loves. Why? To shape us into the image of Christ. The pain reminds us that we're not perfect and that there is a curse and it drives us back to one who became our curse to set us free. And so we go back, it drives us back to Him. So the pain has a purpose. All right, so tough times are temporary. They won't last. They're thoughtful. God brings them for a purpose. They're toilsome. They're full of pain. Fourth, tough times are teeming with variety. He said, oh, you stretched that one. I did. But it's true. In fact, I'll show you that it's true. They're teeming with variety. Look at verse 6. By various trials. See that word various? That is the Greek word poikilos. And the word poikilos means multicolored, like when you're looking into a fish tank and you see colors of all kinds of teeming fish. It's there. It's there. Or like a kaleidoscope. You look through that thing and you know sometimes you got all this color splashed around and everything. Sometimes we think no one knows the troubles that I've seen. So there's lots of variety in them, so that, that's possible. But actually, that means that there is another person who could possibly relate. First Corinthians 10, right? Peter, by the way, uses this word again later. In fact, it might help you understand your trial. Chapter 4, verse 10, when he talks about the manifold grace of God, that word manifold, it's the same word as it's poikilos. Multicolored grace. You know what that tells me? The, the many colored grace of God, you connect those two verses and what you get is that for every color of trial, there is a color of grace. Isn't that good? God has grace to match every single color of trial. Okay, this is the fifth and last principle to get when it comes to tough times. They are transporting. What do you mean by that? They, they should never sh- shrink your, draw, your joy. They're meant to transport your joy to another level. Instead of shrinking your joy, they're meant to transport your joy to another level. So how do you know that? Verse 7. That the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. It's meant to get you to a shinier place. When you pass the test, it proves your faith. It transports you to that place where you grow in confidence and assurance and you see your faith is real and something that God is growing. See, is that good? Trials produce great joy because they prove the genuineness of your faith. That's literally what this word is saying here. When it, this word test. Now, if you didn't have the trial, 
you wouldn't know how real your faith was. Have you ever wondered if you ever start to doubt your salvation? Man, I, I sometimes doubt my salvation. Well, what you need is a trial in your life. You say, oh, well, I'm not sure that I want that. Well, it'll help you to know where your faith is at. I don't think it was coincidental when everything happened with COVID and all that stuff. You, start, you started to see, it revealed where people's faith really were, was at. And for a lot of people, they're attached to this earth. You notice that. Why do you need this trial for your joy? So you can see something precious is here in this faith. So God has purpose in your trial not to steal your joy, listen, but to shape it. Now notice the analogy that Peter gives us about gold and fire. He, can, he compares this process to our faith in a, in a trial. Gold, which is perishable, tested by fire. Now they had this process of putting metals in fire, testing it out to make sure that the, what came out of that fire was a, a purity was pure gold, right? And so the dross would skim right off the top. That was the yuck stuff, the stuff that really didn't belong to the gold. And whatever was left was the purity of it, the essence of the thing, pure gold. And what Peter is saying is that trials come along directed by God's hand to burn off everything else but your faith. What's left is genuine faith. Faith is revealed in the fires of trial. The idea of the burning is the revealing. To show what's there. What's the faith attached to? Now why does God bring tough times in your life? Again, to test that faith. And I wanna, but I want, I, I want to test your theology here. Does God need to test your faith to see what's there? Think about it. John 2, it says that Jesus was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. God knows what's in our heart. He doesn't need a trial to figure out what's in our heart. He can see it with his own eyes. Well, then, then what's it says for testing here? Who's the, well, I mean, I mean he, he's omniscient. Who gains the knowledge when, when it is revealed? You do. So are you trying to tell me that this is a test for me? So that I can see something? Yeah. Notice the word proof. Dokimos or dokimion. This has to do with a saying. It is a kind of test to determine the character of a thing. What remains is what is true. The heat pulls out what's actually there. But I want you to understand that this kind of fire is not like the 1 Corinthians 3 fire. In 1 Corinthians 3, it's talking about the end of the believer's life and fire burning up those things which don't belong in heaven. This has to do with living in the here and now. 
This is for your joy now. Here's the picture then. Tough times come. And what's the non-faith reaction to tough times? Well, you have the pain and the world tries to run away. It tries to get out of pain, right? Maybe you can't and so you medicate it and you try to drink it away and you try to drug it away for others and you try to entertain it away for others. By the way, you know that the, what the word amusement means? The word muse is the word for mind, to think about something. You put an alpha primitive before the word muse and it means to shut the brain off. Some people try to shut their brains off to get rid of the mind to find a way to deal with the pain of life. But genuine faith is attached to something else. It is, it's attached to Christ in the heavenlies, right? I mean, Hebrews 6, where our anchor is. Luke 8, the parable of the soils. Remember that? The sun bears down, and there's heat, and there's thorns, and there's weeds that choke it out. But there's a kind of soil that is, that is going through all of that and yet resisting it. And here's the word, and it says, with an honest and good heart, and it grows. Same sun, but with that soil, things grow. couldn't know without the scorching sun and the choking weeds that there's strength in that soil. Malachi 3, it says, when the Messiah comes, he will come as a smelter and a purifier of silver. Refiner. He comes as a refiner. You know what? We need that, don't we? You know, you read the Old Testament and see that God always sends tests for genuine faith. Genesis chapter 22, Abraham with Isaac. Remember what he tells him? Hey, go kill your son. That's not nice. Do it as an act of worship for me. Abraham didn't argue with the Lord at all. You know why? He believed him. He said, well, he always tells the truth. Must be telling the truth here. I'm going to go do it. And you remember as he was about to plunge that knife into, the, into, into his son, an angel stopped him. He said, no, I, I, I mean, I know that you love me. How could Abraham even do that? Hebrews 11 tells us he figured that God was going to raise his son up from the dead to keep his promise. Why did he do it then? Why did God do this? To test his faith. Job, same thing. Daniel's Friends, also the same thing in the fire. Daniel himself in the lion's den. All of that is a testing of faith. Moses before Pharaoh, same thing. God was shaping Israel's future shepherd and leader. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 8 God connects it all with Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. It says, The Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. We need to notice a few more things as we close about trials in faith. 1 Peter 1.7 Notice the gold perishes. 
Gold is considered one of the toughest metals. It's resistant. It's able to get to a purified state, but if you pl- apply enough heat, if it, it will eventually will perish. He says proven faith is more precious. Why does Peter use gold, by the way, as his analogy for genuine faith? Because it was the greatest earthly value of its time. It set the standard for the value of money and all things. And he says, our faith is greater than that. Greater than anything on this earth. The greatest thing this earth can produce will not stand the test of time and trial, but a Christian's faith will. No matter how hot. And that's the point. Just like fire separated the true gold from the stuff that wasn't true, trials have a way of separating people that say that they have true faith, but they don't really. that's why we have great joy from our trials because they come with divine purpose do you ever doubt if your faith is real listen if you belong to him God will make sure that you have just enough trial to prove your faith is the real thing by the way the same word for trial can also mean temptation James says God never tempts anyone So it's not temptation that proves your faith. It's trial. Trials prove it. You remember the apostles in Acts 5 who rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. Why? Because it proved their faith. It proved that they really were real. Great joy. Let me conclude here. F.B. Meyer. For ourselves, trials come generally from three sources. Those brought on us by others. Those caused by our own sins, mistakes, and indiscretions. And those sent to us directly from God our Father. And beneath this various pressure, what wonder that the heart is bowed down. How apt was the summons of Jesus to the heavy heavy laden and how incessant the great procession of such passing down in the veil of tears at the end of which stands his cross behind which the light of morning is breaking that's what makes us have sense out of the trials in our life let's pray Lord, we love you and thank you and ask you to help us to have this kind of perspective about the trials and knowing that they're going to help us to get to a place of joy. We pray, Lord, that uh, as you said, that you would make our joy full as we consider just what it is that you're doing in our life. With these trials, we love you, praise you, in Jesus' name.